Thank you, Brother Tom and Miss Kay. Um, the music is always beautiful here at First Baptist. It's uh, truly an act of worship that we get to come together and have special moments of worshiping God together through song and being able to do it in such a well-constructed manner. And that is a true testament to what Tom does for us week in and week out. And we are greatly appreciative of that, Brother Tom. Um, as you can tell, I'm not the normal pastor. I'm sure you've heard me say I'm the associate pastor here. Uh, our, our regular pastor is taking some well-earned recovery time. Uh, last week, he had kidney stones, and uh, I was blessed to be able to fill the, the pulpit for him. This week, uh, he is uh, making disciples at the beach, and we appreciate that. And he has, well, he has earned that, and we are grateful for his leadership. And we are so glad that he is able to do that because just like Christ, he is resting. And that is what he needs to do, and he is making disciples in that manner. And so, yes, we kid about him being at the beach, but we hope that he is enjoying that time with his family and that he will come back here ready to be able to serve God in a continual fashion. Um, as I said earlier, as I prepared for this sermon, I thought about the gap in time that the church has been able to be together. And it reminded me of the gap in time between when the prophets stopped speaking for Christ and the time of Christmas. And so let me start off by wishing you all a Merry Christmas in July. Um, I am somebody that will watch Christmas movies year-round. In fact, uh, yesterday, uh, my wife was laughing because as I did schoolwork, uh, I was playing White Christmas not for the first time this week, but the second time this week. And this morning we got up and we watched one of my all-time favorites, and probably many of your all-time favorites, A Charlie Brown Christmas. Um, I love that movie. It is one that every Christmas Eve, doesn't matter whether we've been stateside or Bosnia, I have made my wife sit down and watch it, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. And it is an interesting story, not just in and of itself, but if you ever look into the backside of the story, the creation of that story, uh, Charles Schultz and his uh, creative team actually didn't even have a storyboard put together when they sold a Charlie Brown Christmas. There was nothing. Uh, he sold it to uh, Coca-Cola, who was going to be their executive producer of it, and had no idea what he was going to do. And yet, when they started putting it together, he started saying, we've got to have the actual Christmas story in it. And so if you've ever seen a Charlie Brown Christmas, you know that Charlie Brown goes through the whole story. And during the, the movie that's going on, Charlie Brown just feels this emptiness. He has this just desire to have more, but nothing good comes from it in his life. He goes through the motions. He checks the mailbox, and there is no Christmas card for Charlie Brown. This is kind of the theme of Charlie Brown's life, if you've ever watched any of his movies or you've read any of the comics the peanut comic strips you know at halloween everybody else gets candy and charlie brown gets a rock and this is just the theme of charlie brown's life is it just feels empty and during the story he keeps talking about how i'm supposed to feel something different but i feel empty 
And he gets to the point that he looks and he says, doesn't anybody know what Christmas is all about? And a plea of desperation. Just, does anybody know what this is actually about? And out of the mouths of children, Linus steps forward and gives this beautiful narrative as he quotes from Luke 2. He says, I can tell you what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. He steps forward and he gives this eloquent soliloquy monologue of, from Luke chapter 2. And today I want to invite you to turn there with me as we take a look at what Linus says and a little bit before that. Because there's so much that Christ is trying to convey to his people. Not just in the story, but to us today. As we look at this story, we'll see that God has a message for us because he's been in control and he's set it up so that you and I don't have to feel empty as Charlie Brown. He set it up so that he, we have this decision to follow him. We have this decision to be able to glorify his name. And so we start in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quinarius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his or own, her own town to register. We're going to pause right there because Luke is setting up something for us in this story by just talking about what is going on. He's not just setting the stage, he's actually setting up what's going to be this compare and contrast of leadership, really. See, in Rome, he's pointing out this is the largest empire of the known world. He's pointing out that, that these people lack for nothing. He's pointing out that they have the ability to command people to move miles anytime they want. He's setting up this um, dynastic view of how these people have been able to rule these areas at free will. They're, they're ruling all of these people. They're, 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 they're iron fisting everything. They are completely in control. Whatever they say goes. And so he's setting up the beginning of this, this um, narrative by telling us that this is a time where people are forced to do things they don't want to do. And so we pick up in verse 4, and it says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. This may seem like just some random verses put together. This kind of just seems like some throwaway lines, but in reality, Luke is setting up just how in control God actually is. He's setting up just how in control God has already put the narrative together. In this one verse, we see three Old Testament prophecies fulfilled at one time. He's, he's showing us that God has already foretold of all this happening because God is in control, not Rome. We see uh, that God will send the Redeemer through the line of Judah. Right here, it talks about how they went to Judea to literally register. 
In Genesis chapter 49 and Micah 5, it talks about how the staff, the ruler, the one who will be the one to redeem, will come through the line of Judah. And so God is in control even back in the book of Genesis. He's already foretelling of what is to come. He's saying, don't worry about the Rome. Don't worry about the one that's over you here on earth because I am in control. And so he continues on in Micah 5. It actually talks about how the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And so he's continuing to show, hey, look, here's another way that God is in control. These aren't just happenstances that are occurring. These are God showing you that he's in control of the situation. And in the last one, we, we see Jeremiah 23, 5. It says, Behold, the days are coming that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment on the earth. See, Jeremiah is prophesying that through the lineage of David, a righteous leader shall come and lead God's people. He's saying that it's going to be through David's line that the Messiah shall come. And so literally what Luke is setting up here by telling you that this child is to be born in Bethlehem of the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He's saying Jeremiah wasn't some quack job back and who used to speak to us before the exile and before the time of uh, Rome. He's saying this guy was speaking about what God was going to do during our time. He's saying God is in control. See, during this time, though, they're looking at this and they're mistaking, they mistake what is actually happening. They read Jeremiah's quote and they're looking for a political warrior. They're looking for the one to replace Rome. They're looking for the one to remove them from the oppression of today as opposed to the oppression of eternity. Luke is setting up this contrast in leadership still. He's showing, it, he's showing you the demanding empire, the people who are over them saying, hey, look, we're going to control who you are and where you are and what you're allowed to do versus this loving baby we're going to find in a manger. He's saying, look, these people are demanding of you. These people are forcing you into what, what is happening. So he continues in Luke, 5, or Luke chapter 2, verse 5, he continues. He said he, want, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. This is the fulfillment of another prophecy as there are several indicators of what is going to happen. We see that, this, that Mary was pledged to be married, which means that they had not known each other in a biblical sense. They had been pledged to be married, but they have not laid together as man and wife. And that we see that this is her firstborn, so that there is no one that has been born from her before this. And so we see this fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. In Isaiah 7:14 says, Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel. This is one of the things that is hotly debated by people who are scientific-type people, naturalist people, that they will refute the claim of being born of a virgin. However, that is the, they'll say that it's impossible. They'll say that this is scientifically impossible. They'll say that this is no way that this could occur. However, that's the whole message of the Bible. 
God has created all things for his glory. The Bible is this impossible, redemptive story of God redeeming our sinful souls to his perfect existence. See, it's not about being able to explain away what God has done or what God has prophesied. It's being able to understand that what God has set up is set up in a way that brings him glory and not ourselves. Yes, this is a lot of prophecy taught right now, but all of this points back to the fact that God has set it up. He's already set each and every one of these things up. He is, as we used to say when we were playing games growing up, my brother and I used to get in arguments, and anytime somebody would win a video game, and, um, you know, it was never because the other person was better. You know, the system was rigged against us. The game was rigged, you know. There was no way that this could actually happen. They, they can't be better than me. But yet what God has shown us through 66 books that have been put together in, in this amazing fashion is that he is showing us that he has put it all together so that he can be glorified through our redemption. See, it's not just about what you and I can do because what you and I do is, is, is filthy rags according to Isaiah. What God is trying to show is that he, he came and he stood in the gap because we could not do enough for our salvation to exist. Jesus had to come. Jesus had to be the one. He came and he stood in the gap between us and God and he said, look at me, I am the one who will lead you. People want to explain away the Bible, but yet... There's more and more evidence that proves it as they go along. Just this last week, another story came out about how somebody has been trying to disprove the book of Daniel by saying that the person the Bible claims as the last king of Babylon was not the last king of Babylon. And yet this last week they came out and they figured out that the lineage is right. Said, well, I guess the Bible is right on that one. Let's pick another argument. And they've done this over and over and over again. And God continues to prove himself over and over and over again. He's rigged the game. He already has told the devil how he's going to win. He, he went ahead and wrote an entire book of the Bible about how it's going to happen. And he does that not to... to be just haughty about his spirit, but to show us that he has been working in our lives from the time he said, let there be light, to the time the book says amen. He is trying to show us that he is in control, but yet there seems to still be this contrast between Rome and what we are seeing here in Luke. So we pick up in verse 8, where it says, and there were shepherds, living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Angel's message here is God is here. The Messiah has been born. 
Do not be afraid any longer. See, this is, this is a hopeful message that he's bringing to the shepherds. He's bringing them this message that you don't have a reason to be afraid any longer. Because the Messiah has come, the one who will be the perfect sacrifice, the one who will lead you out of oppression, will lead you out of bondage. He is here. He is no longer this hope, hope in the future. He is now here. He is your hope for today. He is your hope for this very instant. He is no longer this figment of prophecy, but he is now a tangible thing that you and I have. Don't be afraid any longer because Jesus is here for you today as well. Jesus is here to be able to make a difference in your life just as he is about to change the lives of these shepherds. He's showing how divine he is through this. He has shown up and they are afraid, but the angel said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. There are a lot of Christians that live their life in fear about either messing up you know, what, being able to do evangelism or messing up telling people about Christ. But the truth of the matter is, if they're not saved, anything you say isn't going to make them any more lost. We have to be people that, can't, that, that are not afraid. God doesn't call us to have a spirit of fear. God calls us to be people that understand that fear needs to be gone. The, the oppression of fear needs to be gone from our lives because God has come. Jesus has come. The Messiah has been born unto us. It's easy to be afraid of what your neighbor might think. It might be, it, it's, it's easy to be afraid of being the outcast at work. It's easy to be afraid to be the weird neighbor down the street that's obsessed with Christ. Alyssa and I have served in, in, in a place where we, we know people who have literally been just exiled from their family. Here in America, we, 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 claim we, we, we claim that we are persecuted on the regular because, you know, they say we can't do this or we can't do that. There was a story, I guess, six years ago about how a town in Alabama got upset because they weren't going to allow somebody over a loudspeaker to pray. And yes, that, that's hard to hear, but at the same time, we live in an open society where people are allowed to share ideas. That's not really um, persecution per se. It's an inconvenience. Don't get me wrong. It's great to be able to have the public forum and to share who Christ is from a loudspeaker. But the reality is there are Christians around the world that are being just completely disowned by their families. And yet we have a society that allows us to meet on Sundays. We have a society that allows us to speak our minds at work, that allows us to be able to share the gospel day in and day out. We have a society that allows us to be the bearers of the good news to those around us. The angels here say, I bring you good news. It's only good news if it gets to the people. As people here in this church, we have the good news, but it's only good news to your neighbor if it gets to them. Let that sink in for a second that it's good news for you when you come here, 
But if your neighbor never hears it, it is bad news for them right now. Because right now, they are on a destination for hell. And God has called us to be the bearers of the good news. He's called us to be the ones to step out in faith and not be afraid, not be intimidated by being an outcast, but instead embrace that moniker of being set apart for Christ. Do not be afraid. So he picks up in verse 12. And it says, this will be a sign unto you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who were lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured all up in her heart and pondered on them. The shepherds returned glorifying, praising God for all the things that had been heard and seen, which were just as had been told to them. There are so many amazing observations here, but one of them that really stands out to me is when we see here with the shepherds, when somebody has a genuine interaction with God, they cannot help but praise and worship him. This is the baby Jesus. We're not talking about the one who's raised from the dead already. We're talking about they've gone to Bethlehem and seen a baby lying in a manger and yet they leave him praising and worshiping him. Praising and worshiping God. When somebody has a genuine interaction with the Lord, they can't help but want to worship him. When we look at our lives, are we people whose lives show that we've had a genuine interaction with the Lord? Do people see a difference between you and the other people in, your, in their lives? Does your life look like one that has been impacted by the Lord? Or do you look just like everyone else? What's the difference between you and the person who lives down the street? Is there, is there anything in your life that shows that you have the fruit of the Spirit drawing people into Christ? Is there anything in your life that says, I've had an interaction with God and that I'm making disciples in His name? Well, some of you may be saying, well, I can't really make disciples. I don't really know the Bible that well. I don't really have, you know, this extensive, like, apologetics background. I don't know how to do that. And I get that. That's an understandable complaint. However, what we see here is God has selected the lowest of the low to be the ones to bear the message of the good news. We see God has selected the shepherds who are viewed as unclean to be the bearers of the news. And yet people are actually listening to them because their message is one of hope. Their message is is one that, that is true. God uses unexpected people and, and places to progress the gospel. One of the things I've noticed about 
Manchester, and I've noticed that a lot of times talking with people is nobody really thinks Manchester can make a difference. A lot of people have this mentality that Manchester is just what it is. And it's a sad thing to hear somebody say, but the difference, but the reality is, is Manchester can make an impact on the global war, on global war, world because we are already doing it. And you may not even realize how many things we are doing to make an impact from our little church right here. But just three that popped to my mind while I was working on this is we have a missionary in the Middle East. We have somebody from our church who's making an impact in the Middle East right this second. Their life is one that, their life is one that is making an impact on people who are lost and dying and going to hell. But yet they are the one who is delivering the good news of the gospel to those people. We are part of a church planning group in Guatemala. We send things down there to continue to help them progress the gospel in a country that is impoverished. We've gone down there and we've helped them build buildings. We've helped send supplies. We've helped them have the materials they need to be able to share the gospel with the lost. That's this church. That's not talking about any other church. That's talking about this church right here on this hill. We are making a global impact. Okay, well, you say, well, you know, th those are easy things. We also have the ability to impact our local community. We have people in every facet of life here in Manchester. Heck, the mayor is a member of our church. We have a county commissioner as a member of our church. We have people who are in positions both blue-collar and white-collar that are connecting with people that nobody else can connect with. You are in your place because you were strategically placed there by a God who's been in control of all of this the whole time. He's just telling you, go and make disciples. He's not, he may not ever send you outside of Meriwether County. He may send you no farther than Columbus, but he's placed you where you are to make disciples. God's using this church right here on this hill. We are going to make an impact because God's called us to. The shepherds here are just another con contrasting element to Rome. When we look at them, they have no power, no prestige, no influence. Yet their message of the Messiah is impactful. People listen to them. Not because they have this eloquent speech, not because they have the apologetics training, not because they've rehearsed some amazing theological debate. But what they have done is they've had an impact on their life because of Jesus. Every single person who is a Christian should have this timeline where they were here, they were a sinner. But Jesus showed up in their life and they're changed forever. You don't have to know from the beginning of this book to the end of this book to be able to tell somebody about Christ. But what you can do is you can tell them what Christ has done in you. So I'm somebody that gets teary-eyed up here because this is so important. 
the realization of what Christ has done in each and every one of our lives is something that drives us into doing something different than any other religion does. Every other religion is about being forced into doing things so that you can be viewed as good enough for heaven. But the truth of the matter is the gospel tells us we can never be good enough. However, there was a Jesus who came. And Jesus came and he died on a cross. No one forces us into following God. Nobody can force you into that. Luke's presenting, to get a little bit more high-minded, I guess, for a second, Luke's presenting a Machiavellian question on leadership here. And a lot of you are probably sitting there, what is Machiavellian? Is he making fun of us right now? No. Machiavelli was a philosopher and a writer who wrote an entire book on leadership. It was called The Prince. And the whole point of the book is asking the question of leaders, is it better to be feared or is it better to be loved? Rome is the prime example of fear. He, they strike fear into everyone they conquer. They, they tell you, follow us, listen to what we have to say, pay our tax, or we will put you in the gladiator's den and let the lions eat you. We will crucify you on a cross if you try and do anything else. They're the example of what fear is. One of my favorite shows is The Office. Um, and one of the characters on there who is the office manager, uh, he answers this question of is it better to be feared or loved by telling everybody that he wants people to be afraid of how much they love him. And it's a crazy idea, but what is so crazy about it is by the end of the series, that's the way they act, is they are afraid that they love how much they love their leader because he's this crazy individual. And it makes no sense why they should want to follow him, but they do. Jesus comes as this contrast to Rome. See, in Rome, they've been ruling with this iron fist. They've been telling everybody how they're supposed to live, how they're supposed to act, the way they can interact with other people, the places they can go. And they've ruled with an iron fist for so long. And so Jesus comes as an instrument of love. Jesus comes not in some flamboyant way, Jesus comes as the instrument of love. 1 John 3.16 actually tells us this is how we know what love is. is because Christ died, excuse me, Christ laid his life down for us. The Bible also tells us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. These are acts of love. And yet God doesn't force us to follow him. At no point does God come down and put a whip on you and say, no, you must follow me. A lot of times the question is asked wrong. How does a good God send people to hell? The correct question is why does a, is, why does a perfect being allow me to have a relationship with him? See, we ask the question wrong because 
we think of ourselves as good people. We think of ourselves as people who, you know, I'm not that bad. You know, I don't really do that many evil things. But see, the problem is our lives are filled with sin. We talked about it last week. Is it's not the sin, that you, it's not the action itself, it's who it's against. And for us, we are people who think we know how to do it better than God. You say, Carter, I don't, I don't think I can do it better than God. Really, because in Exodus, God gave us a list of things to do as a measuring stick of, hey, if you want to live a righteous life, this is what you do. And it's very easy to go through those list of Ten Commandments and see where you fall short day in and day out. God has given us the opportunity to have a relationship with Him for no other reason than the fact that He loves us. What He does is He displays the sacrificial love, and when we truly understand that love, it drives us into living lives that glorify Him and not ourselves. We're no longer afraid because our lives are taken care of. I'm not worried about this body. I'm going to take care of it because God has blessed me with it. But the reality is to die is gain because I will be with Christ in heaven. I, I, I won't have the pain and frustration of this life. I will have the ability to commune with the perfect God who loves me. God does not force us into anything, but God understands that giving people the opportunity to be somebody who give, give people the opportunity is actually what allows them to build a unity with him. See, our, our, our nation is actually built on this type of principle, forcing anybody to do something they do not want to do only builds resentment. You don't believe it, just look at the most oppressive governments of the world, in, the, in world history. People have rioted against them at some point. Look at what's happening in Cuba right now. There's this oppressive government that has held down the people for decades, and the people are starting to rise up. Look at what's happening in Venezuela right now as the government has started putting more and more oppressive laws on people, and people are starting to rise up against it. Anytime somebody is forced into doing something, they build a resentment towards the, the one who is the oppressor. However, our God is providing a path from oppression and into freedom, and that builds unity with him. When we understand that God has given us freedom from the oppression of sin, from the oppression of death, from the oppression of all things evil, it drives us into a life that wants to glorify Him, that wants to tell others about how they can have that freedom. It drives us into an excitement that we can't help but hold to ourselves, and we want to leave this building and tell others about it. It changes our lives forever. The first time Jesus came, He did not come as a forceful ruler. Everything He did showed Him as a humble leader. 
It showed him as somebody who did not come to be an oppressor, oppressor or being somebody who was driving somebody into slavery, but came as somebody who was an, is just an unassuming, humble leader. The birth itself is an unassuming birth. He's born without a majestic room. He's laid in a feeding trough. He has a common occupation. He's a carpenter. This isn't exactly one of the most glamorous jobs in the world. It's working with your hands. and It's working with um, material that sometimes doesn't want to work with you. He has a band of normal friends. The, the disciples are about the most normal guys you can find. You have Peter, who has anger management issues. You have Matthew, who's a tax collector. You have Judas, who's called his friend, who literally betrays him. This is the most normal group of friends you can find on this earth. These are not, you know, the, the Jeff Bezos, the Bill Gates of their time. These are the, these are the Jim and Steves of this world. These are the guys who are just salt-of-the-earth people who God used to change everything. His entrance to Jerusalem was not one that anybody expected. And everything that had happened in Jerusalem, whenever a new leader came in, they came in riding on the back of a horse, swinging a sword. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Philistines. They came in to oppress, and they rode on the back of a horse to be the political warrior they wanted to be. They came to be the oppressors. In his death, he stood silent during his, in, during his trial. This is completely opposite of every leader or every, um, dr I guess you could say, dramatized person who's ever lived, who in the face of death, they wave their finger at the, at the oppressor. You look at somebody like Socrates, who as he drank the hemlock, laughed and joked with the people around him. You look at the first spy in American history, and he says, it is my only regret that I have but one life to give for this country. This is not the way God, this is not the way Jesus attacks death. Instead, he stands in silence, knowing that he's about to take on our sins, knowing that he's about to be beaten. And he does not defend himself because he knows that this is the way for you and I to have salvation. He prays that God pass the cup from him, but yet he's willing to take it because he knows it is the way it must occur. Even his, in his ascension as he goes to heaven, the attendance is limited. Nothing about what Jesus did the first time came with pomp and circumstance of royalty, but it was done with a workman's type way to show he came to do the work of salvation that we cannot. He came to show that he was going to do the work, not you and I. He literally used a donkey to ride in during his coronation. He came riding on the back of a work animal. What Jesus does is he shows us that he came to do the work. There was, there's no one who can force you to follow God. It's a decision that you and I have to make. As we look at this, there's this absence of communication between the prophets and the time of Jesus. 
But yet when Jesus comes, people can't help but listen to the message of hope. And nobody can force you to have this belief. Nobody can force you to, to, to be the bearer of this good news. However, if you've had a true interaction with God, you can't help but be the bearer of this good news. No one's going to force you to come down front here at the, at the end of this service and give your life to Christ. Nobody's going to force you to go home today and share your faith with anyone. No one can force you to do that. However, God is calling you out of bondage. God is calling you into hope. God is calling you into the freedom of a loving salvation. In our new bulletin right there at the end of the order of worship, it quotes Ephesians 2. And it asks the question for each and every one of us of what is your life built on? Is your life built on the cornerstone of Christ? Is your life one that begins with him? Do you have him in your story? Have you made that decision today? Do you make that decision daily to follow him? Do you pick up your cross and follow him daily? Are you the person whose life brings glory to God? Or are you still in the place where you feel hopeless? You feel empty. You feel like Charlie Brown. What is the purpose and meaning to all of it? I'm here to tell you today that the angels came not just to bring meaning to some shepherds' lives. They came to tell you about, they came to tell you and me and everyone else about a Messiah who came to give us purpose. Let's pray. Father, thank you for so much. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for allowing me to have the ability to have a relationship with you. Lord, I'm a sinner, but yet for some reason you yearn to have a relationship with me. You sent your son in the most assuming, unassuming way possible, not with the grandeur of publicity, but with the humility workman. Lord, uh, help me decide to follow you day in and day out because you're not going to force me into it. You've called me out. You've called me to be set apart. Help me to make that decision. Help me to be the one that doesn't look like the world but shows people a way to you. Help me to not be afraid of being set apart. Help me to be bold and unashamed of the gospel of truth. Help me to make that decision to follow you daily. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're about to have an invitation. And yes, we'll be singing a song during that time, but this is a time for you, an invitation for you to get your life right with God. God's not forcing you to do anything. Nobody's going to force you to walk down this aisle. and Nobody's going to force you to sit in your chair and pray to God. 
I think it's only appropriate that even though Tom and I really never discussed this, the song that you pick to end the service is The Savior is Waiting. The Savior is waiting. He's waiting for you right now. If this is the first time you've ever heard this message, don't leave this place without having your life changed. Come and speak to me during this song. Our altar is open if you need to make a change and you want to lay here and lay it at the feet of Jesus. Come and do that. But don't miss out on this invitation to get your life right with God.